Thank you for checking out the Collective Church podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. Easter Sunday is right around the corner, and we would love for you to make plans to be at Collective that day. It's going to be an amazing Sunday, so mark your calendars for April 9th. You won't want to miss it. For more information, make sure you are following us on social media at My Collective Church. Now let's get into Sunday's message. Every Easter and Christmas, uh, I'll sit down with my staff and we'll try to think of creative ways that make inviting our friends, families, and neighbors to church a bit easier. And so a few weeks ago, uh, my staff was brainstorming what we're going to do, and someone brought up Peeps. And a full-on debate started about whether or not Peeps are good or not. And so I want to know, by a round of applause, how many of you love Peeps? Okay, by a round of applause, how many of you don't love Peeps? There we go. Yeah, this is how you know you're at Collective Church, okay? We don't like things that other people like. Uh, Personally, not a fan. I love marshmallows. Like, okay, also, they're supposed to be chickens. Like, what is this? (laughs) They gave up. They're just giving up. They're like, people are going to eat these. It doesn't matter. Uh, So I'm personally not a fan, which is why Reese's are strapped to the invite cards on your seats this week. Uh, And not just Reese's, the best version of Reese's that are created the Reese's eggs, right? Now, these are not for you, okay? These are not so you can cope when it comes to invitation. Some of you have already eaten it. Grab another one at Next Steps. We have everything over there. But these aren't for you. These are to help you invite someone to Easter Act Collective because we understand that inviting someone to church feels like a vulnerable thing. I'll tell you that every single time I invite somebody or get ready to invite someone to church, my heart pounds. Because what I'm doing is that I'm saying to someone, there's this thing that really matters to me that I want you to be a part of. I'm saying to them, Jesus has impacted my life in ways you probably don't even understand, and I know he can impact your life as well. I'm saying there's this church that I love where I feel challenged and I feel encouraged, and you should check it out because I think you will love it too. And because that can be scary... Reese's, okay? Not for you, for them. It makes it easier. It's for the person you are inviting. Now, people often ask me, how do I know if someone is willing to be invited to church? And so there's three things that I share from time to time um, that really help with this. Now, the baseline for what I'm about to share is that you actually know these people, okay? You talk to these people. You have at least a little bit of a relationship with them. You aren't going full Jehovah's Witness and knocking on the door right at dinner time, Okay? <laughs> Every single time they're in my neighborhood, it's 6.30. I'm like, I'm feeding my kids right now. I'm like, do you have time? I'm like, no, I don't have time. So don't, just don't, don't do that. But here are three things to look for um, when inviting someone to church. They say, I don't go to church. They say, things are not going well. Or they say, I was not prepared for. Right? These are people in your life that need community. These are people that need hope. These are people that ultimately need what Jesus can offer now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. Universally, things are not going well, right? It feels like we're in this really hard season that we've been in for years, and it doesn't really feel like we're getting out of it. And Everyone is dealing with things they were not prepared for, and that is very true, right? Life feels especially hard right now, doesn't it? But that's where the relationship part comes in, right? You invite someone that you have a relationship with. These are people that can see that your life is different, even though things are hard, because of Jesus. 
And so grab some cards. If you have multiple people you want to invite, grab multiple stacks. We have extras over at Next Steps. Today in Collective Kids, they'll be getting stuff as well. Um, they're called Eggvitations. I hate puns. Um, so it kills me to even say that out loud from stage. Um, but these are to help our kids invite. Right? And I shared this last Christmas. My kid is way better at inviting people to church than I am. She's way more bold and way braver than I am. Um, and here's the last thing I'm going to say about this. And we'll talk about it next week as well as we, we're one week away from Easter next week. The worst that could happen is someone says no. Right? And maybe you feel a certain way about that. You, know, you feel rejected. You feel uh, kind of let down. But, but really, I would encourage you, that, that's kind of your own heart that you've got to wrestle with. Right? Because the worst that could happen is that they say no, but the best thing that could happen is they say yes, and Jesus changes their life forever. Right? So grab those stacks, be bold this week, and take a risk. All right, so today we are in week two of our series called Inspired By, and what we're doing leading up to Easter is we're going through the final days of Jesus' life, including his death and his burial, and then on Easter we will finish it up by talking about the resurrection. And each week what I'm doing is I'm using a famous work of art that's inspired by the moments we're reading about so we can dig deeper into Jesus' last days and why they matter so much. Starting in the 13th and 14th century, churches became massive patrons of Christian art and commissioned and bought large quantity of work from Christian painters. Many members of the public at that time were unable to read and write, and so art was used to help share the gospel, the good news. Art was used to help them imagine what was going on in the Bible. And so churches used art to create a deeper sense of connection with people, hoping that these scenes would actually inspire them to follow Jesus. This is why uh, when you look at a lot of 13th, 14th, 15th century art about Jesus, um, they look very European, right? Jesus was not from Europe, okay? He does not look like a pasty white dude. But in these paintings, he will. And the reason why was because they were trying to draw the, the viewers into that painting, right? They were trying to make it so people could look at it in Europe and say, man, I'm a part of this. And so last week, we talked about the painting, The Last Supper. This is the moment that Jesus sat down with his 12 closest followers and gave them a promise that he was going to die for them, that he was going to die for us, that we could be forgiven of our sins. And so picking up from last week, what happens after that moment is that Jesus shares uh, with the disciples, and they head to a place called the Mount of Olives. More specifically, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And while there, Jesus spends time praying. While praying, soldiers come to arrest him, and and this is the moment that Judas, one of the guys who is sitting at the table that we looked at last week, he goes up to Jesus and he betrays him with a kiss. Jesus is then brought before a religious council known as the Sanhedrin, and he's put on trial where they accuse him of blasphemy. Blasphemy is a religious offense when a person says or does something that's regarded as being disrespectful to God. And in the eyes of the Jewish leaders, when Jesus claimed to be God's son, what he was doing was he was insulting God. And so after the Sanhedrin accuses him of blasphemy, what they do is they bring him to a guy named Pilate. He was the Roman governor at the time because he would have to decide Jesus' faith. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today in Matthew 27, verse 11. This is what it says. Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you king of the Jews? The governor asked him. And Jesus replied, you have said it. Pilate's only concern is whether or not Jesus has broken Roman law and if he's trying to undermine Caesar's authority to aspire to some sort of political rule in Israel. 
And that's because most of the outrage surrounding Jesus was that they thought he wanted to be a literal king and a literal ruler. So what Pilate does is he asks him, hey, are you trying to lead a coup to overtake Rome? They don't understand that Jesus is a heavenly ruler and a heavenly king. The story continues, but when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they are bringing against you, Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. So why didn't Jesus defend himself? He didn't say anything. He just received what they were saying about him. And the reason why, and we talked about this last week, is because it has to happen this way. Because this is how it was prophesied or foretold in the Old Testament of the Bible. And the fulfillment of these prophecies meant that Jesus wasn't just some guy. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't a military leader. He wasn't even a prophet, someone that God spoke to so he could speak on behalf of God. He had to fulfill these prophecies to prove that he was God in the flesh. And so Jesus lives this perfect life without sin, but he had to be sacrificed on a cross. He had to die and resurrect from the dead to fulfill those prophecies. So he doesn't fight back. He sits silently. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? And there is so much symbolism here in this part of the story. The name Barabbas means son of father. Contrast that to Jesus, who is known as son of God. So here's what Pilate is asking. He's saying, do you want man or do you want God? And if you think about it, aren't we asked the same question every single day? When it comes to our marriage, do you want Barabbas or do we want Jesus? When it comes to sexuality, do we want Barabbas or do we want Jesus? When it comes to how we raise our kids, is it Barabbas or is it Jesus? When it comes to relationships and faith and addiction and money, whatever it is, do we want Barabbas, son of father, or Jesus, son of God? Do we want man Or do we want Jesus? Do we want culture? Or do we want Jesus? Do we want what people have to offer? Or do we want what Jesus has to offer? So he continues. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And the crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? And they shouted back again, crucify him. Crucify him. Beat him. Whip him. Humiliate him. Put him to death. We don't care. We choose man over God. Why, Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. Now, every time I read this story, I am so conflicted about this part. Right? On the one hand, Pilate recognizes that Jesus is innocent. On the other hand, though, he doesn't do anything about it. He has the power to stop this, and he chooses not to swayed by the mob. He chooses public opinion. Right? And so whether or not he thinks Jesus is innocent, he still chooses Barabbas as well. And so Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, 
then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Part of Jesus' punishment was that he would be beaten with a metal-tipped whip known as a flagellum. This torture, often fatal, reportedly would stick into the back of the victim and rip their flesh from their body. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the headquarters and called out the entire regiment, which would have been about 600 people. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head, and they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. The crucifixion isn't just physical abuse, it's emotional abuse as well, as they humiliated him publicly. And they spit on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes again, and then they led him away to be crucified. Here's the part of the story we're going to dig in today. Verse 32 says this. Along the way, they came across a man named Simon, who is from Cyrene, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. And they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. So this is the only time in the Bible where Simon of Cyrene is mentioned. Cyrene is a city in northern Africa, and the belief is that he was in Jerusalem because he was Jewish and came to celebrate the Passover. And really, this is a story about someone who's in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was not participating in Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, He probably hadn't even heard of Jesus because Cyrene was over 700 miles away. That would have been an eight-day walk. Right, but he's caught up in this moment, he's caught up in this thing, and he's there in the crowd, and as he's there, they pull him in to carry the cross for Jesus. The painting this week comes from this moment. This painting is called Christ Carrying the Cross by a guy named Titian. Just like the Last Supper, this was painted during the Renaissance, Uh, and while Titian isn't a well-known artist, uh, he is incredible. Um, He essentially moved all of art forward with his ability to paint. He's recognized by his contemporaries as the sun amid small stars because he's one of the most versatile painters ever. His painting message, particularly in the application use of color, exercised a profound influence not only on painters in the Italian Renaissance, but on future generations of Western artists. If you take time to Google him uh, this week, you'll see that he painted every important moment of Jesus' life, from his birth to his death to his resurrection. But for some reason, he loved this moment. In fact, he has multiple versions of this moment in painting. Uh, The first one he painted was in 1560 for Philip II of Spain. It was for Philip's private chapel. The version you see on the screen, though, came just a few years later in 1565. What stands out in this painting, and I know you feel it, is that strong emotional charge. Unlike a lot of paintings during the Renaissance that had a lot going on, like Last Supper, right? There's so much going on in this painting. But in this painting right here, Titian zeroed us in on two people. His decision to place the figures in a very close foreground, bringing the faces together, the cross creating a diagonal line between them intensifies this relationship. It intensifies what's happening. Titian also primarily depicts the elements of Christ's suffering. If you look really closely, you'll see that there's a rope around Jesus' neck. He's wearing the crown of thorns. If you, if you get really close to his face, you'll see that there's drops of blood coming down them. But the most moving element is Christ's tearful gaze directed solely at the viewer, right? intended to pull us into this moment, intended to bring us to this place, to feel what Jesus would have felt, to feel and experience what Simon would have felt and experienced. 
This is one of the most powerful paintings you'll ever see when it comes to Christ because of the way Titian painted it. A few years ago, Ray and I were in downtown when out of the corner of my eye, I saw a guy uh, and he was dragging something down the street, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was. And about an hour later, I saw him again and I realized that this guy was carrying a cross. The problem was it was nothing close to what Jesus would have carried. From the looks of it, it was made by maybe one by fours or two by sixes, which is uh, not very big. It definitely could not bear the weight of a human being. But the most peculiar part about this man wheeling this cross downtown in Frederick was that there was a wheel attached to the bottom of the cross. It kind of looked like this. This isn't the picture, but that's what it felt like. Um, now, you can chalk this up to weird things that Christians do that they shouldn't do. Uh, some of you <laughs> have probably done something like this before. Don't tell anybody, okay? Um, and listen, I'm not a historian, and I wasn't alive when Jesus was crucified, but I can promise you that the cross Jesus carried didn't have an all-terrain tire strapped to the bottom of it. And in fact, the painting that we just looked at isn't completely accurate either, because during Roman crucifixions, the convicted criminal would carry just the horizontal beam of a cross to the side of their execution. The vertical beam would be in the ground as a reminder of the criminals who had been put on the cross or who would be put on the cross in the future, and so Jesus would have only carried kind of the cross beam. But the other part of it is that it would have weighed about 300 pounds. Right? It's, not, it's not a small thing. It would have broken him. And at some point, as we read this story, we, we learn that Jesus begins to struggle, and Simon is the one tasked with helping him, and Simon wouldn't have strapped a wheel on it or thrown it in a wagon and walked it up to Calvary. Right? He would have felt the weight of that cross. He would have seen Jesus' blood on the cross. He would have used all of his strength to get it there. Now, there are two things I want to point out from this story. Now, the first is this. There's something deeply symbolic about Simon carrying the cross, right? the tool that would be used to crucify Jesus, because the only reason Jesus had to end up on a cross in the first place was because of our sin. Right? And sin is just a simple term. Uh, it, it means to miss the mark. It's the idea that there's this bullseye that we should aim for when it comes to how we live, this bullseye that's set by God. And the problem is we miss. Sometimes by a little, sometimes by a lot. We choose our own way. We walk outside of alignment with God. And because of this, there's this chasm between us and God. And because God is perfect and we are not, God can't be in the presence of sin. There's this gap. And so in order to be connected back to God, our sins have to be forgiven. The debt that our sin creates has to be paid off. And Jesus pays that price for us. He gives up his own life to cover our sins so we could be forgiven, so that we could be made new. Ultimately, so we, as broken and messy as we are, can look perfect in the eyes of God. And so think about this moment. Simon physically carried the cross that Jesus would be crucified on, But even if he didn't physically carry it, spiritually he did because of his sin. The same is true for us. We don't physically carry the cross to Calvary, but our sin is the reason why the cross had to happen. Paul writes in Romans 3.23, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the thing is, those are just parts of those verses. They don't tell the whole story. So let's read them again in completion. Romans 3 says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. 
He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins, for God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. God freely makes us right in his sight. Jesus freed us from our sins. Romans 6.23 in completion says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, the free gift of eternal life. Without the cross, there isn't forgiveness, and forgiveness means that we get to be set free from our sin. Without the cross, there isn't grace, and grace means that we can keep missing the mark and Jesus will keep loving us. And so Simon helped put Jesus on the cross, but Jesus willingly stayed. He didn't fight back. He didn't call down angels to take him from this moment. He stayed because he loved Simon. He stayed on the cross because he loved the 600 legion soldiers who beat, mocked, and spit on him. He stayed because he loved Pilate and Barabbas. He stayed because he loved the crowd and their children. He stayed because he loves us. He loves you, and he loves me. And so hear me as as I say this. Our sin, the reality of it is this, is our sin put Jesus on a cross, right? Our our future sin, our past sin, all of it. And even though we weren't physically there to carry the cross, symbolically, that is what we have done. And even though our sin put Jesus on the cross, it was his choice and God's will for him to stay there so that we could be made new. That's why this painting with Titian is so intense, Right, he painted it in such a way that we could see ourselves as Simon. He, he painted it to bring us into this story in the same way that Simon was brought into the story that day. On Easter, uh, we already have four baptism plans. It's incredible. Uh, four people who are choosing life, four people who are choosing grace, four people who are choosing forgiveness, four people who are choosing that free gift of eternal life. And if you are not a follower of Jesus or someone who has never been baptized, we want to encourage you to take that next step on Easter. If you are ready for that, or honestly, if you've been putting it off for a while, the question we want to ask you as we lead into this day is, what are you waiting for? Right, right? As you see this painting and as you hear this story and you pull yourself in, the question is, what is stopping you from leaning all the way in? If you are ready for that or just want to have a conversation about that, We encourage you to check the baptism box in your connection card, and staff will follow up with you this week. The whole point of this story and the whole understanding of Simon is that it pulls us in. We are Simon. We're in that place. Here's the second thing I want to point out from this story. So there isn't anything else about Simon in the Bible again. We don't know what happened to him when he finished carrying the cross for Jesus. Like, Did he stay and watch? Did he walk away? Did he understand what was happening, right? Was he just kind of passing by and they pulled him in? So did he grasp what was going on? Did he even know that Jesus' name was Jesus? We don't know. But here's one cool thing we do know. We know that Simon had two sons. Their names were Rufus and Alexander, and his sons were actually with him that day. The book of Mark in the Bible shares uh, the same story, um, but it adds this really important detail in, verse, in Mark 15, 21. It says, a passerby named Simon, who is from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, understanding the way that the Bible was written, when people are named in Scripture, it implies something significant. And really what this means is they didn't expect the Bible to be around this long. They didn't know what the future of the Bible would be. They were writing this for the early church. 
Right? They're writing this for early Christians, and so when they write the names Alexander and Rufus, it's because the readers would have known, I know those guys. I've heard of those guys before. Then if we move forward to Acts 2, when Peter preaches the first sermon for the church after Jesus' resurrection, guess what group of people are there? The whole group from Cyrene. But it goes even further than that. Later in the New Testament, in a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he wrote this in Romans 16, 13. Greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own, and also his dear mother, who has been a mother to me. So here's what we know. Simon's life was changed forever that day because of what he saw. We know that whatever he experienced when he carried that cross for Jesus, whether he stayed or left, whether he saw the moment, felt the moment, whatever, coming out of that, he began following Jesus. Right? Not just him, but his wife and his children. And what they found is historians have found that following this, just a few weeks later, there's a movement of Christianity in Cyrene, and historians and theologians believe that it started with this family that was accidentally at this moment. It's even been said that Simon of Cyrene was eventually martyred and cut in half because of his belief in Jesus. How incredible is that? So write this down. Here's the main takeaway for today. Don't miss the life-changing moments that God puts right in front of you. Right? Don't miss the life-changing moments that God puts right in front of you. How foolish would it have been if Simon carried the cross all the way up to Calvary and just peaced out? Right? Didn't talk to his kids about what they just saw. Didn't stick around to see what happened. Didn't let it change his life. Right? Even if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead three days later, this should have changed his life in some way. It should have impacted him in some way, but the thing is, Jesus did resurrect three days later, and Simon's life was never the same. He didn't miss this moment that he got to be a part of. And in our own life, sometimes these moments are caused by us, whether it's a mistake or whether it's a big, bold step of faith. Sometimes these moments just happen to us. They can be big, they can be small, they can be good, but they can also be bad moments. But we experience these life-changing moments all the time, moments that force us to step back, moments that force us to grow and change and heal. When I was in college, every Tuesday, I would head to Applebee's with a group of guys for half-priced appetizers and to talk about life. You can judge me for Applebee's. I still love it. I can't help it. Uh, But it was the same thing every week. We did this for four straight years. We would head off campus at 9 p.m. We'd head back around midnight, and we would drive this small two-mile stretch back to our campus. One night, it had started raining, and when we turned to head down the main road that led back to our school, it was this really sharp turn that would kind of go around this curve and then went straight down into a valley, because we were in the middle of the Appalachian Mountains where we were. And so when we took this curve, we actually came upon a van that at some point had lost control and was completely flipped upside down. And so we pulled off to the side of the road. We called 911. Uh, two of the guys I was with, we walked up to this car, and there's empty liquor bottles everywhere, like broken all over the pavement. pavement they're broken in the car. As we get closer, we realize there's an older man standing off to the side of the road. His head is in his hands. He's looking completely distraught. And so we start to head toward him to see what was going on, and then we started to hear screaming because there was someone trapped in the van So me and another guy ran over, and we laid down on the road to look inside, and the wife uh, was in the driver's seat, and she was still buckled into her seatbelt completely upside down, and she was screaming. And so the guy with me tried to calm her down, ma'am. We called 911. Someone's on the way. Hysteria. 
Ma'am, are you okay? Ma'am, is there anything we can do to help you right now? And she was just repeating the same thing over and over again, but we had no idea what she was saying. And finally, it became clear she was screaming, get me my cigarettes. This is a completely true story, I promise you. (laughs) Strapped in upside down in a van that she had just flipped over because she was hammered. She's not asking if she's okay. She's not asking if her husband was okay. She wasn't asking for anything other than her cigarettes. Talk about missing this moment. Talk about missing this opportunity to maybe take a step back and realize, I need to change. Life needs to be different. And maybe it's not this extreme, but maybe it's the moment that you get into an argument with your wife and you react in a way that's way more emotional than what is healthy. You can take a step back and you can think that something isn't right here. You can realize that there's this pain deep down in your soul that needs to be worked through. There's a wound, a shadow, or you can miss it. You can push it back down. You can let life get busy again. You can never try to figure out where that came from until you blow up again, until you choose to miss it again. It's when that friend bails on you and puts you in that low place, right, where you start to feel unlovable. You begin to believe that you aren't good enough. It's a a place where you put up these walls to push people out. And you can realize that you're putting your worth in other people. You can realize that maybe you surrounded yourself with the wrong people. You can realize that maybe there's some work you need to do with the type of friends you want in your life, or you can miss it. You keep heading down the path in the direction you're on that only leads to more pain and more loneliness and more battles with self-worth. It's when you experience the tragedy that you didn't expect, when you experience loss, when the unthinkable happens. You can take a step back and you can reevaluate the things that matter to you. Right, you can take a step back and recognize that God is with you even in the low moments of your life, or you can miss it. Right, you can say pithy Christian things, like everything happens for a reason, so you don't actually have to grieve and heal and grow. Right, it's when you're reading the Bible, and a verse crushes your soul because it feels like God is speaking to you. It's when you see someone get baptized and your heart begins to stir. It's when your decisions have put you at rock bottom, you're in a hospital bed, you're all alone, you're turning to addiction. Don't miss it. When your pastor tells you not to miss the moment that's right in front of you and he puts a slide on the screen, don't miss it. When you hear the story about Simon of Cyrene, he gets one verse in the Bible, one sentence. You hear about him carrying the cross for Jesus. You learn that he was so impacted by that moment that he changed his life forever. He put his faith in Jesus. When hearing that story, you realize that it's our sin that put Jesus on the cross, but then Jesus willingly gave up his life for us. Willingly was abandoned. Willingly was beaten within an inch of his life. Willingly was mocked and judged and humiliated. That he could have stopped the whole entire thing because he is the son of God, but he still chose to go to cross for our sin. And that only someone who loves you with every ounce of his being would be willing to go through that. Don't miss it. When you feel that push to follow Simon's lead, to trust Jesus, to align your life with Jesus, to let your life change and never be the same because of Jesus, don't miss it. Let's pray. God, um, 
When we read the Bible and we read stories, um, really about nobody's name Simon, that we often skip over that part or we think of it as a footnote. Yeah, just, just someone that saw a story rather than played a part in it. But God, as we, we dig into this story today and we read um, God, that he wasn't just there, but God, that he changed his life forever. People believe they started a movement of Jesus in a place that didn't have Jesus. God, I, I pray that we don't miss it. God, that we don't skip over these parts, that we realize, uh, God, that we are Simon. Not, not only is it that we fall short and, and we sin, and our sin is the reason why Jesus had to go to the cross, but God, we're Simon in the fact that we can respond to that. We can let that change our life forever. God, we can sit in the moment, uh, we can miss the moment, we can walk away from the moment, or we can lean in and trust you and, and change our life forever, which ultimately changes the lives of people forever. God, I pray that's what we want. So God, this week, as, as we go through life, as, as we have these experiences, good and bad, God, whether it's a conversation with someone we love, God, whether it's a pit in our stomach we feel before we head into work, God, whether it's when we're reading scripture, God, I, I pray that there's these moments in our life that we don't miss, that we lean in, God, that we seek you out, we try to figure out, God, what are you telling us? What do you want from us? God, we're so thankful um, for this story. We're thankful for Simon. God, I pray we can be more like him and how we see in view you. God, we thank you and love you and pray these things in your name.